We're going to look at the life this morning of a woman that some of us have probably never studied before, and I don't say that pejoratively, I just say that because she's not somebody who's usually on our radar. I've never preached about her, and I have been fascinated again in studying her life this week, um, just about how much we can learn from her and the application that we can draw from some of the decisions that she makes uh, in this chapter. This account really um, parallels a lot of what we face every day. In our routine and all the things that are going on, we are constantly faced with a series of decisions. And we're faced with a series of choices about whether we're going to stand for the Lord, whether we're going to declare His name, whether we're going to pledge allegiance to Him, whether we're going to honor Him, whether we're going to choose righteousness versus choosing what is evil, every day we make those choices. It can be something as simple as, dear to my heart, somebody going too slow on the road, somebody cutting me off, somebody not moving when the light turns. You know that's where I struggle, right? That's my deepest sin is when I drive. Or it can be somebody being rude to you, somebody gossiping about you, somebody lying about you, somebody just doing something that offends you, or it may just be choices that we make as we're out and about. Are we going to stand for the Lord? Are we going to live for Him? Not just Sunday morning, not just when we stand together and sing that chorus, but every moment of every single day. And that's really the key, because if that's not our determination, if we're not saying to ourselves every moment of every day, my job as a believer who's been redeemed is to honor the Lord. If, if we're not saying that every moment of every day, our decision-making will be poor, and we'll find that we're getting ourselves into situations that are not only not helping us, but are choosing to satisfy us rather than to satisfy the Lord, or choosing to bring ourselves the most attention, or choosing to do what gets us ahead in life. And I don't know if you caught the pronoun each time, where it becomes about us, or it becomes what's important to me, what I want, what, what I crave, what I desire, what will fulfill me, what will get people to notice me, rather than making it our determination and our fulfillment to honor and please the Lord in everything that we do. Everything that we do as children of God should be for the purpose of pleasing and glorifying Him. Not just Sunday morning, not just the Bible study, not just when we're talking to our kids. Every single moment, every single decision should be about pleasing and glorifying the Lord. Now that's contrary to cultural pressure which tells us that you need to be selfish, you need to do what you want, which now is getting more blatant, have you noticed it, about just evil. It's not even disguising it anymore. The devil's feeling empowered. He's not even trying to, to nuance it anymore. He's just right there in our face now. Uh, look at the front of the newspaper, look at the evening news, look at the media. Everything's now in our face. It's not hidden anymore. And that should be a sign to us that we need to buckle down and say, I'm going to get even stronger about my conviction. So it's in the face of cultural pressure. It's in the face of our human nature, which we're told in Romans no longer controls us, and yet it still influences us far too much. So we've got to fight that. And it's contrary to our desires. Our desire is to feed our ego. Our desire is to have our physical and emotional desires met, to get pleasure. Instead of denying ourselves, instead of doing what we're called to do as believers, the constant pressure of our old nature, the constant pressure of culture, the constant pressure of our mind is to do what we want to do instead of living like Christ. Now this is no small issue. We all struggle with it. We've struggled with it already this morning. We will struggle with it while we're listening and while we're studying, and we'll struggle with it again when we get in the car. Everything we do every day determines who we are and shows who we are. The things we choose will be an indicator of not only whether we're controlled by the Spirit or by our flesh, but the things we choose will also be an indicator of whether we really love the Lord or not. And I don't say that as a guilt trip. I don't say that to be dramatic 
I think you know me by now that I don't tend toward the dramatic. That is just a statement of fact. The decisions we make and the choices we make that people see and even that people don't see show whether we're controlled by the Spirit or by our flesh, and they show whether we're, con- whether we're really in love with the Lord or whether we're not. Now, the text here, 1 Samuel 25, makes those difficult decisions kind of detailed. And um, really, what we see here is a, is a prime example of making the right choices. Now, the person that we're studying this morning, we kind of started this series last week, 10 people you probably don't know in the Bible. The person we're going to study this morning is named Abigail. And I want to encourage you this morning to take down some notes uh, and to write some things down that the Lord impresses upon your heart. There's a lot of application in this study. So let's really interact now. It's easy to just kind of sit and wander. And I think that was thunder, right? Was that thunder? No, it wasn't. Okay, it was was sky cracking open or something. It's easy for us this morning to just kind of be, but let's get out a pen, let's get out a piece of paper, use your bulletin, there's notes space in there, and let's really see what the text has to say. Because Abigail is one of those people we don't know very well, and yet what she does really should get our attention. The choices she makes in the face of a lot of pressure and a lot of personal trial are are very important for us to see because they show her wisdom, they show her determination to choose what is right and to stand on the side of what is righteous. And that's really what this study is about. This study is about standing on the side of what is righteous. You want a motivation for this week. You want something that will drive you as we head into the dog days of summer and July and kind of hot and humid and and we're kind of dragging, things aren't as active, or maybe you're looking forward to a vacation. If you want a motivation for this week, spiritually, it is to stand always on the side of what is righteous. Not just what's good, not what seems okay, but what is righteous and what is holy. Because we're going to face a lot of temptation from sin, we're going to face a lot of social and peer pressure this week, Our lusts are going to rise up. Our desires uh, for vices are going to be very strong. And unless we are determined not to be enticed by sin, not to live a double life, not to have one foot in the old life and one foot in the new, we'll fail. So there really can be only one option. There's only really one choice that we have if we want to love and serve the Lord this week, and that is to stand on the side of what's righteous and not waver or back down one inch. Not one inch. Now, the question is, is that the determination of our heart? Is holiness the standard this week? And that's a heavy word in July, but that's the challenge every day of the year. Is holiness the standard that we're living by? Because if it is, it changes the conversation. If our determination of our heart is to be just like Jesus Christ, in every single way, if our determination is to be wise, because those two are inseparable, then this is really the only choice. So the question we're going to ask right at the outset, and if you're taking notes, just write this down at the top. The question at the outset is, is holiness my only option? Is holiness my only option? Now, on the day that Abigail faces this important choice, and she didn't wake up in the morning, I don't think, knowing that she was going to face this choice, But on this day that's detailed, and it starts here in verse 5, which we'll read in a moment, moment, that was not the time where she made the decision. We need to understand at the start, Abigail doesn't make a choice. She doesn't decide to live righteously on the spur of the moment. It was already built into her character. It was already something that she had set her heart upon to honor the Lord in what she did, to follow after what was righteous to be a godly woman. This was already there. So when she comes to a place of difficulty, when she comes to a place of challenge, where the choice is before her to live righteously or live unrighteously, her mind had already been made up. See, if we wait to kind of, for that moment, well, when it comes to the crucible of decision-making in terms of whether I can be holy, then then hopefully my, my love for the Lord will kick in and hopefully I'll make the right choice. If we're waiting for that, we've already lost. It has to be set, has to be ingrained, it has to be the foundation 
of who we are in every single way. So when it comes to those times of decision, it's not even a question. We already know what to do. We can already anticipate what we're going to do if we're challenged that way. Now that's what happens here. So let's, let's look at what she does. We're going to kind of take this in three sections this morning. But let's get the setting for her choice and then we'll study what she does and apply it to our lives because the application is really key. Okay, 1 Samuel 25, let's start in verse 1. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him in his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Go back to the start because the text interrupted itself. came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel that David, verse 4, heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David said, ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shears, now your shepherds have been with us, and we've not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that we were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. In other words, your guys have been hanging out with us, We've treated them well. Just want you to know there's some background connection between the two of us. So I'm about to ask you a favor, but I'm not asking it out of the blue. I'm asking it because we've taken care of your guys. Now we're asking you for some help. Everybody got that? All right. Therefore, middle of verse 8, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we've come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I don't know? So David's young men, verse 12, retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. Now, how do you think David's going to feel at this point? You think he's going to slough that off and go, eh, no big deal. We'll go to the other store. Not so much. Verse 13, David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also put his sword on, and about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed behind with the luggage. Then one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both day and night, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do. Here's decision-making, verse 17. Now you've got to decide, Abigail, you know the background, what are you going to do? For evils plotted against our master and against his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. All right, you get a sense of the background. Let's go back to verse 1, because the Spirit gives some details here that we really need to grasp. First of all, in verse 1, we see that Samuel dies. Now, that's not a small detail, because Samuel had been the spiritual rock of the nation. He had been the foundation. He had been the priest that had been called by God through his mother, who wanted a son so badly and dedicated him. Samuel went to the temple under Eli, who was corrupt, and Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, who were burning fire to false gods. It was a complete mess. Samuel goes into the temple as a young boy, eight or nine years old. God calls him. Samuel then becomes the spiritual center of the nation. So it is not a small detail we see in verse 1, that Samuel dies because it signifies somewhat of a spiritual shift. We know that David's the king. We know that David's godly. We know that he will lead well up until the time that Solomon takes over. But Samuel had been the one who had been closest to the Lord, who had heard from the Lord, who had been the prophet of the Lord, and now 
he's gone. And the nation faces a change at this point. Now there's a little spiritual principle we need to grab before we go on, and this is important, because the wisdom that Samuel had came from seeking the Lord. And wisdom always comes from hearing from the Lord, whether it's through time and prayer when we're listening to God, whether it's through study of the Word, whether it's through a godly friend who encourages us and challenges us. Wisdom always comes from hearing from the Lord. But if we're not seeking the Lord, and we're not asking the Lord, and we're not listening to the Lord, guess what? There's no wisdom. We'll make decisions, we'll go about our way, we'll try to do what's right. That's what Saul did. Saul was not God's man for the kingdom. The people said he's popular, he's good looking, he'll be great. They put Saul in the power of of being king, and Saul never seeks the Lord after God originally blesses him. He ends up going to a witch in Endor and trying to look into a crystal ball and say, what should I do? Didn't seek the Lord. The nation almost fell apart because of him. But Samuel had sought the Lord, and Samuel had wisdom. And that's always something we need to understand as believers, that if we want wisdom, right now if you're in a career change, or or you're looking for God to heal you from something, or you're trying to understand what God wants you to do next, or where God wants you to serve, or how to raise your kids, the best thing we can do is listen to the Lord. We run to books, we run to TV, we run to friends, we try to figure it out on our own, we, we put something out on Facebook and say, what do I do? Uh, we, we seek every option other than getting on our knees and saying, Lord, what should I do? And God never turns aside from that. So wisdom comes from the Lord. Well, we see this in Abigail. Because now that there's no real voice of spiritual maturity other than David, now it's going to be up to the people. And it's always up to the people. It's always up to the people of God to be seeking the Lord and asking for wisdom. So that's what Abigail's doing. Notice the details about her. It says that she was wealthy. Her husband was very wealthy. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was rich by every measure. It also says that she was intelligent and that she was beautiful. Now, from a human standpoint, Abigail's got everything. She's rich, she's good-looking, and she's smart. Culture tells us that if you've got that combination, that you are rock-solid, that your life is great, that everybody should look up to you, that you have everything that mankind seeks. What has struck me as I've been in the grocery store the last couple days and I look at those awful magazines that are sitting there that you kind of can't avoid, right? And I was looking at one last night, was in the store with my, uh, with my daughter, and it showed a very prominent celebrity who we all know, who everybody says is so beautiful, she's married to the best looking guy on the planet, you may know where I'm going with this, and that, that she is a star, she makes 20, 25 million a movie, She's got her life together. She's a humanitarian. Everything's great. And it showed a picture of her looking very awful. And it talked about how she had been in some drug house. And I mean, I don't know whether the story was true, but that one picture was everything that she doesn't want to be. The price of fame, the price of celebrity, the price of what culture tells us is important. That if you're rich, good-looking, and intelligent, that you have it all. Well, look at Abigail. She's got it all. She has cash. She has looks. She's attractive. People are drawn to her. Really, at this point, and we need to get this because this is very important. At this point, Abigail is one of the cultural and social elites. She's somebody that people would look up to. And because of that, she by default, and this is true in any culture that's ever existed, she by default has great influence and great leverage with other people. Now this could easily go to her head. At this point, she could be arrogant, she could be snotty, she could be saying, look at me, I have uh, wisdom, I should tell people what to do. She could use this basically, if you'll forgive the vernacular, to be a jerk. She could be harsh and evil like her husband. She could manipulate people. She could do anything she wants. And she's got a perfect influence for that because her husband, look back at the text, her husband is not exactly a nice guy. 
And the Spirit gives us a couple details about Nabal. I've got to turn this down because it's blowing my notes. The Spirit gives us a couple details about Nabal. First of all, that his name means fool. All right? How many of you parents will see this next week with the parents that bring their children up here to be dedicated? How many of you would have chosen a name for your child that meant fool? This is my son, the fool. But that's what Nabal's parents did to him. They named him that. Sometimes we live up to our name, and sometimes our name just describes who we are. For Nabal, it was perfect. Because Nabal was foolish. And God doesn't throw that word around uh, very easily. He says, if we call people a fool, we're in danger of hellfire. So for him to say, you need to notice this, this guy's name means foolish. It's an important detail that we need to understand. So his name meant fool. Second detail to notice is that he was a Calebite. Now that's ironic because Caleb was a godly man. Caleb was one of the only two men that came from Egypt to the promised land. He and Joshua who were the good spies who went in. So the fact that Nabal is a Calebite tells you that he's the black sheep of the family. Nobody's inviting Nabal over for Thanksgiving dinner because he's a disgrace to the family. So God's drawing a contrast between godliness and ungodliness here. So she's married to a fool. She's married to a guy that's disgraceful. Even though he's wealthy, Abigail at this point could detach. She could say, well, you know what? I'll use his wealth I'll use my social connections. I'm very attractive. I can draw people to myself. I'm very wise. I'm cunning. I can work situations to myself. Forget Nabal. I'll be a wife in name only, and I'll just ignore him because I've got my own income and my own friends, and I'll do my own thing. But look back at the text because that's, what not, that's not what happens. David sends his men to their house. David's already been anointed king. Samuel anointed him before he died. David is the rightful heir to the throne. But Saul's still monkeying around. David's not going to take his place. He's not going to usurp what God has allowed. So he says, I'm going to just wait my time. Saul proceeds to chase him. This is in the chapters prior to this. Proceeds to chase him through the wilderness like a dog. David has two opportunities to kill Saul. He doesn't take them. He continues to wait his time and wait his time. So he sends his men, people know who he is, and he sends his men to Nabal and says, look, my guys have helped your guys, you help us. little reciprocation here. We just need some help and some supplies because we've been running for a while and, and we just need some stuff. And Nabal, his, his reaction is so interesting. He basically tells David, get lost. And in the process of telling him to get lost, he mocks him. Now, Nabal makes a couple mistakes here. Not the least of which is not recognizing that God had put His hand on David and it would be wise to align himself with what God had blessed. But this is what happens. Here's the application. Here's what happens when we're not walking with the Lord. When we're not walking with the Lord, we lose our ability to have wise discernment about what to do. And we miss out on the work that God is doing in and through us. When we're not walking with the Lord, we miss it. God tries to give us wisdom. God tries to give us discernment. The Spirit tries to convict us and teach us and put thoughts in our heart. And we just say, I don't want to do that. Or we ignore it. Or we don't recognize it. And then God is working in and through us and around us. And we miss it because we are not walking with him. And that's what happens with Nabal. Instead of asking the right questions, instead of sensing that the Lord was at work, instead of sensing this was an opportunity, he's sarcastic and he's derisive and he says, get out of my face. And that not only puts him in physical danger, but now it threatens his relationship with his wife. Because now his wife's in the awkward position when the servant comes and says, hey, you need to know what's going on. Your husband over there, not a smart guy. In fact, the verse says, you talk to him, he doesn't even listen. So you need to hear what happened. What happened was David and his men came looking for supplies, and your husband told them to get lost. Now, Abby, you need to make a decision here. You've got to decide right now what you're going to do, because right now, what you choose next will determine 
everything that happens in your life. And again, she was already prepared in terms of her character. And what she does next, we're going to look at verse 18. What she does next shows her wisdom and her character and her heart for the Lord. Because right here, at this moment, verse 17, right here, Abigail has to decide who she's going to serve. And she has to decide whether she is going to take a stand for what is righteous or whether she is going to dishonor the Lord. Look at her choice. It's in verse 18. Let's just read a couple verses here. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me, because I'm coming after you. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal. Came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain, that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. And David had said, Surely in vain, this is kind of his pledge to his guys, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness. In other words, I took care of his guys. So here's what I'm going to do because he's disrespected me. Nothing was missing. Everything that belonged to him, I returned. Now here's what I'm going to say. Verse 22. May God do so to the armies of David and more also, if by morning I leave even one male that belongs to him. In other words, David's throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying, you know what? I'm fed up. I took care of his guys. I asked for a favor. He denied me. He ridiculed me. He sent my men away. So I'll tell you what. May God be my judge if by morning one member of his household that's a man is alive. I'm going to kill all of them. Look at the next verse, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. Isn't that nice how she speaks about her husband? For as his name is, he's a fool. Nabal is his name, folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord who you sent. Now, look at the details the Spirit gives. She puts together enough food for a feast. She gets 200 loaves of bread, two jugs, which are big casks of wine, five sheep that were already prepared to be a meal, five measures of grain, which is about 10 quarts, a hundred clusters of raisins, yuck, and 200 fig cakes, even more yuck. But, you know, they're hungry. So she's got a big meal for 600 hungry guys who have been in the wilderness. She does her due diligence. She gets it all ready. And this must have been a big caravan of donkeys to carry that much food. So you think it would be kind of hard for her to sneak out of the house at this point, right? Because she's got a whole line of donkeys that are loaded with with wine and with bread and with with five sheep that have been slaughtered. I mean, we got to be talking maybe 20, 25 donkeys going on this trip with her. But she doesn't tell Nabal. She doesn't tell him anything. And not only is it important that she goes and takes this food to kind of make amends and to kind of atone for the stupidity of her husband, but notice how she presents it because that's even more important. Look back at verse 23. Remember, she's wealthy, she's attractive, and she's intelligent. All of which should give her a huge advantage. She could use any of those resources in this situation to try to get her way. But I want you to see, very important from the text, that she doesn't use any of them. She could have come with money. She could have said, look, my husband's an idiot. I'm not being, you know, rude. That's his name. He's an idiot. So I married an idiot. I'm still married to an idiot. He'll always be an idiot. Everybody knows he's an idiot. So look, I got to compensate for him. Here's some cash. How much do I pay you guys? Because my husband disrespected you. Listen, I got money. You need money. Let me help you out. She doesn't do that. She's going to 400 guys who have been in the wilderness that haven't seen a woman, let alone an attractive woman, for months at a time. So the the obvious thing she could do is dress really nicely, put on some makeup, go out there and say, hi, guys. And they're going to go, huh. She could use 
her femininity. She could use her attractiveness. She could leverage that to try to manipulate their minds and try to get her way. Or she can be very tactical. She's very wise. She's intelligent. So she can go out there and work the situation. I mean, they're probably hot from too much sun anyway. And they're probably, uh, you know, angry. So she can just kind of work the situation and, and come up with a plan that'll, that'll pacify them in some way. She, she could do many different things to try to make this situation better, protect herself, and not have her husband get killed. She might even say to them, look, I'll give you Nabal. We'll work out a deal like Delilah does. We'll work out a deal. Don't attack him now. We'll have him killed. I'll get the inheritance. I'll give you guys some money. But what's fascinating about Abigail is how she approaches them, and it tells us a lot about her. And what we see here, and this is where I want you to write some things down because you're fading a little bit, and these are the applications. What I want us to see here is that the choices she makes and the way she goes about this really applies to how we live and the choices that we're going to be challenged with this week. Because we're going to be faced with the same situation, the same decisions where we have interpersonal situations that are tough, or we have challenges where we need to stand up for our faith, and we've got to decide, what am I going to do? So I want to show you very quickly, like one minute each, six things that she does. First of all, she does not use food as a bribe or a manipulation. The Lord wouldn't have honored that. She doesn't bring the food saying, all right, I'll make this better. Hopefully I can pacify you guys. She brings the food as a genuine peace offering, as a genuine statement of care to try to make up for her husband's foolishness. Second, would you see that she humbles herself before the person who is justifiably angry. Now, she's not at fault. She's an innocent bystander. She didn't know that this was all going on until the servant came and told her. But she still humbles herself before the person who is angry. And I want you to remember that thought because the third thing that she does here is she takes the blame on herself. And you go, wait a second. She didn't know about it. Her husband's a fool. Why is she saying, on me and on me alone, you put the blame? She says, it's because I wasn't there. If I had been there, if I'd known about it, this never would have happened. So blame me, David. I'm the one who should have been there. Again, she's not responsible in any way, and yet she takes the hit. Now, this is important because this is very hard for us to do. It's hard for us not to slam the person who was wrong to everybody around us to try to make ourselves look better and to try to make sure they get the blame they deserved. You ever done this to your spouse? Ha! Huh, can you believe what my wife did? Hey, listen, this is just between you and me, right? Oh, sure. Oh, I can't believe the way my spouse talked to me. They did something so stupid the other day, I couldn't even believe it. Can you, do you ever have that problem with your wife? I can't believe it. Or my husband, oh, he's so lazy, or he doesn't do what I say, or he's not attentive to my needs. And, and we just start to slam other people instead of saying, you know what, maybe I need to look at myself. Maybe I could have handled the situation differently. And the problem is that when we do that, a lot of times we do more damage interpersonally telling it to other people than the original offense ever was. So we perpetuate it and make it worse, but we think we're getting some relief and getting some empathy from our friends because we went and talked about our spouse in the way that made them look bad. Now, husbands and wives, we are guilty of this. You ever gone to your kids and said, did you see what they did? I just... You just need to, I, I just need to vent to somebody. Am I okay to vent to you? Sure, give me some dirt, Dad. I, I'm so frustrated. I just got to talk to somebody. You ever done that? Gone to your kids and hit your spouse in terms of what they did emotionally? Tried to kind of get your kids on your side? Oh, it's very subtle that we do this. And that's wrong, and it damages our marriages. We even do it with our kids. What happened? Well, 
Johnny was so disobedient. And I keep telling them that they need to do this and they never listen. I'm glad that you're not that way. You say, I'd never do that. I guarantee you, you did it probably this week. I did it this week. Where we talk about one of the children to the other children, and then there's interpersonal dynamics there, and there's jealousy, and there's resentment. Listen, that damages our families, and that's what the devil wants. The devil wants every single marriage in this room to be broken. The devil wants every single family relationship in this room to be broken. I'm, I'm talking completely annihilated, devastated, you hate each other. And if you think we're immune to it because we're in church or because there's no way, he will attack you even harder. Julie and I find that the time that we are most frustrated or tense with each other is the day before we do ministry. It took us a while to figure it out. We used to have all kinds of fights at a prior church when we do prayer meeting. And, and we found ourselves six weeks in a row having a, a huge argument. She'd be okay with me telling you this, I think, but don't tell her I did. But, but no, this is, this is honest truth. I want to be honest with you. We had screaming arguments. My wife and I don't fight like that. We had screaming arguments. So I'm driving to church to do prayer meeting. And I'm angry and hostile and resentful, and I'm stormed out of the house and slammed the door, but I'm going to go lead prayer meeting now. And after a while, we looked at each other and said, why do we always fight on Thursday? And then, oh yeah, it's because we're about to go do ministry, and the devil hates that. We have to guard our marriages against character assassination. We have to guard our families against criticism. Abigail takes the blame on herself even though she's not guilty. Fourth, would you see that she's honest about the root of the problem without blaming the person? Now that's, a, that's an art. That's a righteous way of speaking truth without being critical. She says, let me tell you, David, my husband lives up to his name. He is foolish. And that's why he acted the way he did. But listen, that's not going to stop me from yielding to the Lord and trusting His provision. Just because I'm in a bad situation doesn't mean I'm going to turn from the Lord. It just shows me the contrast. And then, look at what happens next. She appeals to David. She says to David, David, watch out yourself. Because you at this point need to not act in anger. You need to not act in lack of trust in God or do anything that would dishonor the name of God because I'm telling you, and they've just met, she says, I'm telling you, if you go into my house and you start killing everybody and you kill my husband who's foolish and you kill all the men that, that serve him by association, there's guilt there. If you do that, you are going to risk the Lord's wrath because you have not let God get the revenge. Very important spiritual principle. Listen now, this is hard for us. A very important spiritual principle that we always need to remember is the reminder that God says, vengeance is, tell me, mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Somebody does you wrong, somebody's unjust, somebody's critical. The response is not to say, well, I'm going to get you. The response is to say, Lord, you're the judge, you're righteous, I'm not. I'm about to react in my flesh. Will you please take care of it? God says, I'll take care of it. Where there's sin, where there's injustice, I'll deal with it. Vengeance is mine, don't usurp me. So Abigail actually warns David instead of letting him be judge and jury. Sometimes we act as judge and jury, whether it's criticizing somebody or hurting them socially or impugning them to other people or, or even taking physical revenge instead of just trusting the Lord and asking Him to defend our name and our lives and to do what He deems is just. That's what Abigail does. She says to David, David, ho, oh, wait a second. All your men, you got 401 guys, all with swords. I know where this is headed. I know what you're going to do. I brought out this food as a peace offering not just because I want to stop the destruction of my house, but David, listen, you need to stop and listen. 
You need to listen to what the Spirit says. And this is the most important, I think, principle out of what she does. This is number six. Abigail sees it all from the Lord's perspective because she loves the Lord and she's living righteously. Notice the repetition of her message to David. Anytime you study Scripture, we've said this many times before, look for repetition. Seven times in six verses, she uses the words, the Lord. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Abigail had perspective. David, listen now. I know my husband's a fool. I know you're angry. I know I'm taking the blame even though I don't deserve it. But listen now. The Lord has something He wants to do here. And you and I both need to listen to Him. The Lord has restrained you from shedding blood. The Lord will give you an enduring house. My husband's actually fighting against the Lord. But the Lord will fulfill His promise. And when the Lord does that, this is what she's saying. Just remember that I helped you. See, her understanding of the work of God and the mercy of God and the plan of God is so powerful that it dictates every single decision that she makes. And you and I, believer, that has to be the goal of our decisions. That in everything that we do, we understand the work of God and the mercy of God and the plan of God, and we yield to it. So Abigail goes from a woman that could manipulate the situation based on what she has to someone that's actually teaching the future king of Israel and saying, listen to the leading of the Lord. Listen to the hand of the Lord. David, stop. Do what's wise and what is holy and make the right choice. And that was a great reminder for David right before he becomes king. Let me give you an example of this. You guys okay for five more minutes? Okay. Let me give an example of this, because I was reading this week, doing my patriotic duty, I was reading about George Washington. George Washington is a very interesting, brilliant leader, and his leadership was really tested and proven in two very key decisions that he made, and both were very pivotal into us sitting here today in a country called the United States of America. We have to wonder if Washington hadn't made these two decisions, whether our country would even exist. First decision he made was in the winter of 1777, which was, by all uh, accounts, a very brutal winter. We can relate to that, right? Brutal winter. The British troops, 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 let's call them troops. The British troops had taken Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia was a very important city because it was basically the heart of the colonies. But the British troops had moved in that fall and taken it. So in December... Washington went out to Valley Forge. That's where I grew up. 20 miles west of Philadelphia is very hilly and rolling, and the town of Valley Forge is there. Washington and his troops settled into some very harsh log cabins that are still there to this day. No insulation. The winter was brutal. They suffered immensely. They had very little food, very little clothing, very little medicine. They had marched barefooted through the snow. Their feet were so torn up Many of them had their feet amputated. Those that didn't, there were bloody trails in the snow where they were walking. I mean, this was was unimaginable situations. Supplies were low. People were starting to question Washington's leadership. Uh, His troops were deserting. Uh, He feared a a rebellion every single day. They started in December with 12,000 troops. They came into spring with 9,000. So there was death and frustration and hardship and pain all winter. Now, Washington had a decision to make because he knew the British troops were 20 miles away living in colonial homes, eating beautiful food. And he's getting hit, he's tired, he's being criticized, and he has to, at this point, make a decision. Do we just give up? Was this a futile battle? Do we just say, never mind, I can't rally the troops, they all want to desert me, I'm a horrible leader. Instead, he persevered The troops continued to get strong emotionally. They continued to get more healthy. And by the time spring came, they were more unified and more resilient and more resolved. And when the French joined us as allies in the spring, by June, they left Valley Forge, the British left Philadelphia, and the whole tide of the war changed. So that's decision one. 
Decision two came a couple years later in 1783. Washington was 51 years old, which at that point was old, and he was tired. He had spent his whole life in public service. He had been a surveyor, then he had been a, a, a politician, and then he had served in two different wars. So in 1783, he decided to retire. All he ever wanted to be was a farmer, and he had a home in Mount Vernon, and he wanted to go back and just kind of hang out and be a farmer and not be involved anymore. The problem was, in 1783 to 1786, the nation was really on the brink of dissolving. And there were so many problems that Washington, when he started to try to retire, said, we need a stronger national government. We better get this organized, because if we don't, the nation's going to fracture, we're going to become a bunch of different competing colonies, and the British will come in, and they'll completely destroy us, and everything we try to do will be shot. Well, they decided to have a constitutional convention in Philadelphia. And the state of Virginia went to Washington and they said, we want you to represent us. Now, Washington had a problem because he had said, I'm not going to be any public service anymore. So if he does this, he could be breaking his word. He had had his brother die a few years before, which really tore him up emotionally. His mother and his sister, who lived close by and were very dependent, were both failing health-wise. And Martha said, I'm tired of you not being home. And I want you home. I don't want you to go to Philadelphia. Don't be involved anymore. You said you wouldn't. So Washington had a very important decision. John Knox, who was his close friend, and James Madison, who we all know about, both said to him, George, don't come to Philadelphia because this may not even work. And your reputation's on the line. John Jay, who was another patriot, said, I'm not even sure this convention's legal. So it had been very easy for Washington to stay at home and say, you know what, I did my job, I led the revolution, I fought the British, I'm now going home to Mount Vernon, and I'm going to hang out, you guys do it. But he knew the responsibility was great, so he went to Philadelphia. He was pivotal in the adoption of the Constitution in 1787. And then, against his desire, he accepted the call to be the first president of the United States. And when they tried to give him the powers of a king, he said, no, that will ruin the nation. He died two years after his last term. Now, without either of those decisions, choosing what was right instead of what was easy, it is hard to know whether our country would even exist today. That's how important our decisions are. Which brings us back, we got to finish, to Abigail. After she does what's righteous and honoring to the Lord, look at a couple more verses. Here's what she does next. Look at verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed, blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left in Abel until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he's holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. He's completely oblivious. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became like a stone. And ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Here's the conclusion. Notice how the Lord honors Abigail for honoring him. This is how God works. We talked earlier about the fact that God has been kind and merciful beyond anything we could imagine. The fact that He rescued from sin us from sin by offering His own Son as our sacrifice, as our Lamb that we pledge allegiance to, the fact that He did that is more than we could ever ask or think. The fact that He lavishes His love and grace on us when we deserve nothing is more than we can ever ask or think. But God goes a step further. He says, when you honor Me, I will honor you. 
I'll go the next level, even though I've given you everything you could possibly imagine and so much more. Here's the arrangement that we have. You honor me and I'll bless you with abundance. But if you don't honor me, forget it. Now we see that in verses 32 to 33 where David recognizes her discernment and says, this was great. You were wise. You influenced me. When we're drawn to, when we're spiritually humble and wise, we're drawn to people that are spiritually humble and wise, and they're drawn to us. And the wisdom of her discernment is shown because Nabal gets himself drunk, throws himself a little party. He has no clue what's happened. And he gets drunk, and Abigail looks at him and says, You know what? I'm not going to break the party. He can't understand me right now. So she waits till the morning when he's drinking coffee and stumbling around and trying to sober up, and she says, um, let's sit down for a little bit. Got some things to tell you. And she tells him the story, and essentially Nabal has a heart attack and pretty much dies right there. Ten days later, he dies. David never laid a hand on him. Abigail didn't have to orchestrate his death, but the Lord took care of it. Now, the application here is not about Nabal, It's about Abigail. She made wise decisions. If her heart was away from the Lord, or she was proud, or she tried to use what she had to control and manipulate the situation, we wouldn't be studying her life this morning. She'd just be a footnote in history that we had never heard about. But because she served the Lord, because she was righteous, because she was humble, Because she served the Lord first and foremost. Last statement. 4,000 years later, we're sitting in this room talking about her. If you want to know the influence you can have on other people, live for the Lord and make wise decisions. Everything in culture will say, you're a fool. You're a Nabal. You are so out of touch. Your, Your convictions are so wrong. You're not politically correct. How could you be so narrow-minded and intolerant? Are, Are you an archaic person? What's wrong with you? Get in with the culture. Figure out what the trend is. Go along with that. What is your problem? But when we serve the Lord and we honor Him, God will always bless that. Always. 4,000 years later, we're talking about Abigail. She never knew when she woke up that that morning that she'd even be faced with that choice, let alone be hearing some guy drone on and on and on about her in Wisconsin in 2014. But that's the power of our decisions.